2: Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a film noir expert and mixologist on the podcast to talk about the resurgence of cocktail culture and the correct way to order a martini. He is a writer, speaker, host of Turner Classic Movies, Noir Alley, and author of a new noir-inspired cocktail book, it's Eddie Muller. Eddie, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be chatting with you today.
3: Well, I am excited to speak with you, Jamie. As we go along, I think we'll find that we have quite a bit in common.
2: Yes, I think we both share a love for San Francisco, and we're going to get into all of that. But first of all, you refer to yourself as a contemporary renaissance man. What is it about eras past that intrigue you?
0: (laughs)
3: Well, I call myself a contemporary renaissance man because I do a little bit of everything, none of it (laughs) exceptionally well, but a lot of different things that I've, I've gotten into over the years. But yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, I was born in the late 1950s. And so I came of age in the 60s and early 70s, really. And it was a totally different era. But my dad was a kind of a big wheel in San Francisco. He was a sports writer. Mm -hmm. I just had an affinity for that whole era, like looking at him and Mm -hmm. photographs from his prime and everything. It was just there was a style there that I just really related to. And so I always, I always say I kind of had a foot in both worlds, you know, like the summer of love, (laughs) but I, but I was more interested in like, what was this town like in the forties? You know, it really looked like it was a happening place, you know? So, and and I've always just been the kind of person in my, in my life and in my writing very much like to know, how did we get here? like mm-hmm. what happened back then that led us to this place now so my interest in historical stuff has been you know that it's been sparked by that curiosity and there you go i mean i i feel like i write all my books for younger people to uh-huh. kind of show them this is what it used to be like don't don't disregard this there's a lot of really <laughs> great stuff here you know
2: i mean have you considered yourself an old soul from from an early age <laughs>
3: Well, that's kind of funny, because when you're young, people call you an old soul. When they think you're a little mature beyond your years, and then you get older, and then you're just an old man.
2: <laughs> well, I wasn't so, trying to call you an old man by any means.
3: <laughs> but I guess so. I mean, I, I was always the youngest, and all all the people that I circulated with and hung out with when I was growing up, I was always the youngest one. Mm. So, cause I like learning from older people, you know, and hearing their stories and all this stuff. I, I love that kind of oral tradition of passing down wisdom through, through you know, <laughs> through the eras. But I don't know if I'm really an old soul or not. I'm just a curious soul. Let's put it that way.
2: Okay, that's fair. I'm curious. I'm curious. You know, you say you mostly hung out with, you know, older people and were were learning from them. Was that a choice or just a situation? Like, did you seek that out or because you were hanging out with older people all the time, you kind of found yourself in this path that that you continue to be on?
3: I had an older brother who was 14 years older than me, who was Mm. who was cool. (laughs) <laughs> and so he would take me places where other kids my age weren't going, you know, and hung mm-hmm. out with, he hung out with really interesting people. And so it, it sort of got to be the norm for me. And I guess I was a, I was an okay kid. I was, you know, cause I was curious. And so whenever I was the tag along with the group of adults, they didn't seem to mind. So, so that was nice. And then, you know, my same thing with my dad. I mean, there's a, there's a great, Story in my life about how I knew my dad. My, he, like I said, he was a sports writer and he specifically wrote about boxing. That mm-hmm. was his specialty. And one time, I knew him as my dad, the guy who came home from work every night and was just the gentlest, sweetest guy. And then, when you turned sixteen, there, and then it was your chance to go to the fights with dad. Oh, and and he was a totally different person. <laughs> A totally different person so? at the fights. These people all would kowtow to him. They all they all wanted his acceptance and his seal of approval mm-hmm. in the sports pages. So he got treated with all his deference by people who were like, some of them were flat out gangsters, you know? <laughs> and so that was really interesting to see that. And then, and he also spoke very differently in that world, as you might imagine. There were words I had not heard before that I suddenly was hearing that night at ringside. <laughs> and of course, when we left, my dad, you know, we walk out into the, into the fog in San Francisco. My dad puts his arm around me and says, you know, you don't have to tell your mother about anything. <laughs> I don't think my mom, my mom never set foot in, a, in a, anything related to sports. She never went in a gym, an arena. She never wow. went to a baseball game. She had absolutely zero interest in all of that, so it was. I, I led kind of this double life between those two worlds.
2: Yeah, and this is as you mentioned. This is all in San Francisco. You know, you're a kid growing up in the city, a city that's also close to my heart, as we mentioned, and a very rich. History. I remember.
3: I remember <laughs> you, Jamie. I remember you. You remember Warrior me. Games, Giants, sidelines
2: oh, yeah. of Giants. You know, as they're as they're making their World Series runs.
3: Absolutely, you you were a big part of that. <laughs>
2: No, it was, I mean, I I look back on it with, you know, so many fond memories, both for the sports scene there, the, the city itself, the food scene, obviously. What, what about San Francisco for you personally really kind of nurtured or created your love of art and culture?
0: Well,
3: I mean, San Francisco was always a blue collar town. And then This whole arts community grew out of it. You know, in the 50s, it became like the center of the beat generation. Mm -hmm. And it was always very, very welcoming to artists. There was a big artist community there. I attended the San Francisco Art Institute, which I'm sorry to say has now closed. Mm. And just the culture was just everywhere. It's such a small town. I always say San Francisco is a big city, but a small town. It is. And and you know exactly (laughs) what I mean, right? And and so you'd be in one neighborhood and you'd just walk three blocks and everything has changed. And you're mm-hmm. in a different neighborhood now and the culture is different. And it, it was very, very exciting that way. And it was a fun town to explore growing up. I, I'm I'm very grateful that I grew up there.
2: And you can sit, continue to reside in the Bay Area. How has the city evolved over the years? Because I, I remember even how much you know I, I lived there for 5 years it changed a lot during that time i know it's changed a ton since i moved uh what what evolution have you seen take place
3: well unfortunately that small town part of the, is is sort of gone mm. and it and because of the development the you know because the it's so small the town is you know 49 square miles you mm-hmm. know it's it's 7 miles seven across 7 by 7 yeah 7 by 7 <laughs> And, you know, the, so real estate's at a premium and the, the overdevelopment of, you know, the eastern half of the city has just led to this, you know, honestly, it's like what, what I saw 25 years ago or more now in Hong Kong, where it's just like the, the difference between the affluent people and the people who got nothing. Is just really, really pronounced now. And that had a lot to do with just development, real estate development, and the tech industry coming in. And, you know, tech by its very nature is sort of introverted in a way, Mm. you know, people stay in their little bubbles and they do zoom meetings and all this stuff. And that was never what San Francisco was. San Francisco was sort of life on the, you know, now when you say life on the street, you mean homeless people. sure. But back then life on the street was just like, I'm, I'm going out because it's it's happening outside, (laughs) you know, I'm not staying in my room. I'm going to get out there and mix it up with what's going on. And so that's, to me is the biggest, Change honestly.
2: What What do you still love about the city?
3: It's the city. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the g ge- it, it is the perfect geographical setup. You know, I mean, everywhere you turn, there's a be- something beautiful to see. Mm-hmm. It's just spectacular. You know, the water on three sides, the geography, the climate is great. It's just the mix of people and the money has changed the city. Considerably, I shouldn't say the mix of people. The there's less of a mix of people now mm. than there used to be, and so quite honestly, Jamie, I you know I live across the bay now, and I I kind of prefer Oakland. Yeah. at this point to San Francisco. I mean, Oakland's be-
2: great. <laughs> Oakland
3: is fantastic, and I'm so distressed over their losing every sports. All franchise, of you the know. teams. All oh of my them. goodness. You know, the A's are going now. And it's just so unfair because, you know, the difference is I walk into a bar in Oakland and within three minutes I can have struck up a conversation with somebody who does nothing related to what I do for a living. But I can learn all about it and talk to them. If I walk into a bar in San Francisco there's no eye contact. Everybody <laughs> no is looking wants to talk. at their phone. Everybody is looking at their phone and talking to people who aren't there. Right? And that that's that's not for me. That the old soul in me says I like to <laughs> I like to sit at a bar and talk to human beings. You know, and look them in the eye and find out what they're all about. That's to me that's great fun.
2: Do you think San Francisco will get back to that?
3: I don't know. It may have priced itself out. Yeah. You know, I mean you used to be able to survive as an artist in San Francisco, and you really can't anymore unless your art is tech-related. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you want to be a painter or something like that, you know, forget about it. It's, you know, you can't afford to live there. But this is, you know, a natural evolution of things, I suppose.
2: I suppose. What are some of your favorite food establishments, either in San Francisco or in Oakland? <laughs>
3: Well, it's funny you say that because my wife and I used to joke that we lived for a while in San Francisco. We lived way out in the avenues, okay, like all, all the way out, like by Seal Rock, mm-hmm. you know, near the Cliff House. And we would, because the one thing that was I always hated about San Francisco, the, the worst thing, and you know what's coming, is you can't park. The parking, <laughs> the
2: parking, or the hills, or you can't, you can't really walk. You know, depending on how far it is, either unless you, you know, have your your, your, your walking shoes on, I guess.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But you know, that's why the city keeps you in shape, Sure. but we would get in the car and just drive until we found a parking space. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where we would eat. Like it's going to be within two blocks of this parking space is where we're going to eat. And that's testimony to how great San Francisco is as a food town is there was always something Hmm. good. Wherever you parked the car, there was a restaurant that (laughs) was, that was pretty good. You know, and and because there was so much, you know, the ethnic food there, you know, you can within like we're, out where we lived, it was like, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? And it wasn't like Chinese food or Mexican food. It was like, you want Russian food? Mm. <laughs> How about Hungarian food or, you know, Spanish food? It, it was just great. And that's what I've always loved about it. So I, I never really had one particular go to mm. place. And if you think, back then or even now I would tell you what it was? <laughs> why why would I do that? Because it's a it's a place that nobody knows about and then all of a sudden you start talking about it and then you can't get it taken. Well I,
2: yeah, I, I could see that. You can't gatekeep that stuff though, right? <laughs>
3: no, do you do you remember a place in San Francisco called Mama's Cooking? It sounds it was out, Vaguely it was out in the mission and okay. it, was, it was a great Mexican yeah. restaurant, you know. And we learned about mama's cooking and and then we started telling everybody. And then everybody else started <laughs> learning
2: about it as well.
3: Could not get in. Could <laughs> not get in.
2: What about favorite cocktail bars?
3: There are several. Geez. Now now you got me thinking like, know, deserves, you on the spot. Who deserves a plug? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I live in Alameda, and there was a number of bars here. Kind of one of the tiki revival certainly happened here. With A couple of friends of mine started a place called Forbidden Island Ooh. that was a nice, you know, just it was an old, divy local bar. And then it, they these guys turned it into a destination bar. And then Martin Kate, who was one of the partners, opened up several bars in San Francisco, like Smuggler's Cove and a place mm. called... This is a weird idea for a bar. It's a place called Whitechapel, and it's ba- it looks like a London subway station. And in Whitechapel was the the place where Jack the Ripper committed all of his crimes.
2: Oh, wow. I mean, how <laughs>
3: weird is that to have like a place a, a that... A bar. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> yeah. the motif. But I guess for the noir guy, that kind of... That kind of makes sense.
2: That does make sense. Well, speaking of the noir guy, you're not just the noir guy. You're the czar of film noir. How does one get that title?
3: (laughs) (laughs) There is a woman who was the event coordinator at the Mechanics Institute Library, which is the oldest. Very very niche. (laughs) Yeah, it's very niche. It's the oldest private library in the Western United States, west of the Mississippi, and it's down on Sutter Street or Bush Street or something. Mm downtown and i was giving a, a talk there one night and her name was Laura Shepherd and she you know when you when you're starting out in the business i don't know if this is the case with you Jamie but when you hand in your not your resume like your bio right mm-hmm. that you want the host to oh, deliver sure. for mm-hmm. the audience when you're starting out that bio is like longer than, than the work that you've done, or that right. you've actually accomplished because you want to be taken seriously. Sure. So my bio was just like, I was throwing everything in there. All right? of the things. And then All he the did accolades. this and then he did that. When he was in school, he made a film and blah, blah, blah. And she got so tired of reading it. She goes, oh hell, he's just the czar of noir. <laughs> and that's how I got the name. She She said it. And I said, oh my God. I am keeping that.
2: Yeah. She anointed you. She
3: anointed <laughs> me. And, you know, because my my dad was into boxing, I certainly knew the value of a good nickname. Yeah. You know, Carl the Truth Williams. Say, you know, so <laughs> it's like, yeah, I want to be the czar of noir.
2: I mean, that's that's a pretty fantastic nickname for sure. Do you remember like a specific moment or film that sparked your fascination and focus with film noir?
3: Yes, it was a. Picture from 1949 called Thieves Highway, and guess what? It was set in San Francisco, uh. <laughs> and it it's about a guy who re, a veteran who returns from World War II, and his father is a, a produce grower in the Central Valley, and he gets rooked by a broker in the old produce district in downtown San Francisco. And what sparked my interest or my passion, if you want to say that is that none of this existed in San Francisco when I was watching the film. That whole district, you know, Mm. it was the, the the what did they call it? The Golden Gateway or something. It's down just off the Embarcadero where there was a big development, the big Hyatt Hotel went Uh, in down there and all this stuff. And just beside that, near the train tracks, if you remember when there were trains that ran into San Francisco, was this produce district. And Seeing it in this film and then realizing that was all there, but it's not there now, hmm. is exactly, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like I, I became fascinated with, well, what used to be there and why is it gone and what's there now and what does this say about the city and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So Thieves Highway was definitely the one that, that sort of ignited my interest in film noir.
2: What distinguishes film noir from other film genres like crime dramas or, or thrillers that we see today?
3: Well, most of them would be classified as, as crime dramas or thrillers or something. Okay. Back, that, that's the way the exhibitors referred to them back in the day. The artists themselves never even called it film noir. That was left for the critics and the scholars to bestow the name. But it was really a combination of a particular look that the films had, very, very shadowy, very dark, influenced by a lot of European filmmakers who came to the United States to get away from the Nazis in the 1930s. Right, Mm. So their, their most talented and creative people emigrated to the United States and made a huge impact on Hollywood. But the scripts themselves were very, very American a lot of slang american vernacular speech that is so clever and creative and that's what keeps them popping for a mm. contemporary audience like wow this is this the dialogue in this movie is great and and also a big part of it was they were stories in which the quote-unquote bad guys were often the protagonists. Mm. Like, if it was a story about a bank robbery, they stuck with the bank robbers. Okay. You wanted to know what their story was. If it was a movie like Double Indemnity, the protagonists were the the lovers who were plotting to kill her husband. And <laughs> and they the story was about them, which was unheard of because, you know, in, in Hollywood, usually good triumphs over evil sure. and, you know, everybody lives happily ever after. But, you know, movies serve a purpose, even though their job is to entertain, they do serve a purpose in the society. And movies got America through the Great Depression. Movies got Americans on the home front through World War II. And there were certain, you know, they were circumscribed in that you can't depress the audience. Well, then when the war ended, all these artists wanted to do something else. You know, it's like we, we've told the uplifting stories. Now we want to show a different part of the culture and a different part of how we actually are. And that's how film noir developed. And just they're massively entertaining as well. And oddly, those are the films that have kind of withstood the test of time really, really well, because it's sort of where America lost its innocence. Mm. And and people today, I think, relate to that more easily than the Happily Ever After movie where it's like, boy, that's corny.
2: <laughs> it was making me think because, like, as you mentioned, you know, having the protagonist be, quote unquote, the bad guy. Do you find yourself when you watch those movies, are you are you rooting for the bad guy or are you still rooting against him, even though he is like the central character
3: or she? You empathize, but you don't sympathize. Okay. Like, I, I don't, like, it's like, wow, what if that was me is a big part of film noir, because that's what art does, right? I mean, narrative storytelling allows people to experience something vicariously that they would never really do in their lives, right? So these stories give us that window into what if I made the worst decision of my life, <laughs> Right what if I sacrificed everything for that woman at the end of the bar and I just ended up face down in the gutter? You know? <laughs> that, that's And there's kind of a thrill to that, you know, that you get to experience it vicariously. Unless it's a heist movie, which proved to be they were immune to the production code, which said crime couldn't pay or anything mm. that stuff, because you always root For the people who are trying to pull off the heist. Right. I don't don't care. (laughs) Only a, a guy who runs a bank. Would sit in the movie theater and think, "I hope they get caught. I hope they get caught." <laughs>
2: That's so true. I wonder why that is. That we, you know, you you root for that 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 success story in a heist situation.
3: Be, because as a viewer, you are helpless if you see <laughs> if you see disparate people banded together against impossible odds to pull off the impossible mission. In essence, it's no different than a sports story in mm. which the underdog. You want to see the underdog team win. You know, nobody. Yeah if if you know it's the little league team versus the yankees I mean, you're not going to root for the yankees <laughs> <Right>. you know
2: <laughs> how did this style you think maybe influence or impact later filmmaking styles and genres
3: very much so because it was such an identifiable style the use of light and shadow and and just the whole attitude and feel of the films was very influential not only in the united states but very much so in france and and other countries who started making their own versions of these movies. And then a different generation would watch it come back from overseas. And then they'd say, oh, you know, Francois Truffaut does it this way. And like, well, yeah, he was influenced by the American movies, clearly. But the main thing about them that made them so influential for another generation is that they're not expensive movies to make. Mm. I mean, I always joke and I say, you can make a film noir if you have a man, a woman, a hotel room, and a weapon of some sort. <laughs> you, can, you can pretty much make a film noir. So they're not costly. So you see a lot of contemporary filmmakers or, you know, that have gone on to great success started. You know, the Coen brothers made Blood Simple and Christopher Nolan made a picture called Following. And, you know, Martin Scorsese made Mean Streets was his first movie, which is is sort of a film noir. And it just it it makes perfect sense that you do this when you're young because the films influence you and it's not expensive Mm. to, to make them.
2: What what role do like bars and cocktails play in this very specific genre? (laughs) <laughs> now, now we get
3: down. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an immensely significant place because that's where the bar or the nightclub is where legitimate society mixes with the underworld. Mm. And that always happens in these stories. So you always, you always learn that the guy who runs the club, who, ha, who wields political power because of his social connections and everything. Like he used to be a bootlegger or he mm-hmm. was a criminal or something. And that's where you go to peddle influence and get things done. And all. And of course, you know, there's the the beautiful woman is, is the torch singer in the club. <laughs> and then she figures in the plot. And so, yes, nightclubs are a big, big part of it. And also because these were movies made in the mid 20th century, socializing after dark was the major thing that people did. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, there were just nightclubs and bars everywhere because you didn't stay home and stream movies about them (laughs) on TV. You actually went out and did this stuff in public. So, yes, they play a significant role.
2: You you did not go to college, but according to your website, have, quote, compensated by always hanging around smarter people and effortless feet typically accomplished in bars. So I'm curious if you have, you know, a great story or a memorable conversation that you've struck up at a bar that has really stuck with you to this day.
3: Innumerable. I'm sure there's a lot, right? <laughs> Innumerable ones. I mean, some of them are really great because I've made lifelong friends in bars, you know, because I, the key, as you may have gathered, Jamie, the key here is that I am not afraid to talk. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's an important so, skill
3: exactly so you know when i go into a bar if if somebody is giving off and which can get you into trouble <laughs> as well bars are this wonderful place where strangers are suddenly friends if only for an hour right and yeah. once you start getting convivial and once as i like to say the liquor loosens the screws at the <laughs> back of the tongue quoting the clash now but <laughs> that then people just talk and they feel like they can you know express themselves because they're not being judged and they you know a lot of mistakes get made in bars but uh, like i say a lot of a lot of friendships and a lot of stuff that you wouldn't discuss elsewhere you can talk about in a bar and for the very reasons you said because it it feels very clandestine it feels safe safe and It's your choice as to whether you ever want to go in there again and see any of those people again.
2: Eddie gives us a scoop on his new cocktail book and the resurgence of cocktail culture up next. Well, your affinity for bars, noir and writing, have coalesced into your first cookbook, which was released this week. So congratulations. Um, Thank
3: you very much.
2: Eddie Muller's Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir. What inspired you to?
1: Selling a little or a lot. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, to put this
3: book together. Well, it, it felt like a natural thing. I mean, I've, I was a bartender at one point in my life, and then I've continued to have an interest in mixology, if you want to call it that. And it just was a natural. And the publisher, Running Press, works very closely with Turner Classic Movies, doing you know imprints of movie-related books. And I had done a book called Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, that was very successful with Running Press. And they said, what do you want to do for a follow-up? And my editor there, a lovely woman named Cindy Sapala, she also does a lot of, cocktail books and things and said, would you consider doing a cocktail book? And it was like, oh, don't, you know, you don't have to twist my arm. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do that. And I'm just so grateful that they went all out. I mean, it's, it's very deluxe. And, you know, not overly expensive, but the the design of the book and everything, it's, ex- it's exactly the book I wanted to do, which is a wonderful thing to say because you hear from so many people like it wasn't quite what I'd hoped it would be, but this is.
2: So how many of the the recipes in the book are, are your creation or are they more like classic cocktails that are just pairing with certain movies? It's a combination
3: of both of those things. Mm. In some in, I I would say probably I think it's maybe 10, 10 or 12 of the cocktails are my own creation. Some totally from scratch like nothing like this existed before. Which is kind of dicey to say in the cocktail world, because everything is sort of derivative of everything's Martini been Man- done. Yeah, Martini Manhattan, Old Fashioned, Negroni. <laughs> those are like the four cocktails that everything is somehow derived from those four. But I just felt like there were 10 or 12 that are my creation. But then sometimes there's a cocktail mentioned in the movie. Mm. And, you know, people who watch my show, Noir Alley on TCM, they... They'll see people drinking in the film and they'll, they'll, I'll see on social media because a lot of people tweet during the movie, which is wonderful because it's like a live, you know, real-time focus group. But I'm also, but I'm also one of these guys that's so old school, I'm like, stop tweeting, watch the movie.
2: Watch it, yeah. <laughs> tweet it's, afterwards. It, it's like
3: the modern equivalent of talking during the film. Right? <laughs> so true. So, but then I noticed that they all say, I haven't seen this one before, so I won't be tweeting as much which is good. Hmm. But they all say, I wonder what's in that cocktail. Like, you know, in, a, in the Blue Gardenia, this movie from 1953, Ann Baxter drinks Polynesian pearl divers. So I knew immediately I was going to put, because it's a real drink. Yeah, So I'm going to put that, that recipe in the book or Ray Milan drinks a bunch of stingers in the big clock in 1948. And it's like, I'm sure a lot of people don't know what a stinger is. So what I'll is make, a stinger? Tell us. <laughs> it's brandy and creme de mint. It's okay. something you probably wouldn't want to drink, Jamie. No, but I
2: definitely don't.
3: <laughs> but, but for the for the folks who are curious, now they know. Yeah. As I say, use the smallest glass in your collection for this drink, because <laughs> you won't be drinking a lot of it. So anyway, that, that's how, and then just matching them. Like sometimes yeah. I was inspired, like I want to do a cocktail in honor of Barbara Stanwyck. And so I I found the appropriate cocktail. The Brooklyn because she was from Brooklyn and mm. it just there was a lot of uh taste testing. Like <laughs> somebody, I'm gonna somebody drink Somebody has this.
2: to do it. I'm gonna drink
3: this and like does this feel like Barbara Stanwyck would drink this? And, <laughs> yes. Okay, that passed the test.
2: <laughs> what what do you think is responsible for kind of this resurgence of cocktail culture that I feel like we've been seeing over the last, you know, five or ten years where you have, you know, you have like just cocktail focused bars, you know, cocktails that cost $20 because of everything that goes into it. What, what is the, you know, where, where can you point to like why that is happening?
3: I think it, it probably is because of what we were talking about just a moment ago about cocktail lounges being safe places. And I think that people who really like that experience of being, you know, one thing i don't do – and this is weird given how much of a sports fan I am. I don't like to go to cocktail lounges that have televisions.
1: Mm.
3: I, don't, I don't like that's to fair. go to, to, to lounges with big screen TVs and stuff that are really noisy because I prefer to go to one where you can hear people talk.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And and I think that that's a big part of those, those bars that you're talking about where it's really kind of upscale and mm-hmm. the, the place is really designed – you know, I think that those are a haven for people of a certain, have a certain attitude and appreciate going out for a night on the town is not your sneakers and your cutoffs and a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm I'm going to dress and I'm going to go out where other people are dressed this way as well and act like my great-grandfather.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, get... Getting a little dressed up and, and having a destination in mind and, and something that that makes you feel like you're out for the night, you know, instead of just grabbing a drink, I guess is is probably the difference, right?
3: Correct. And I mean, I've always, you know, I have a a public image now because of the show. And I people always expect me to be in a suit and a tie and and sometimes people say to me, you know, what are you so dressed up for? You know, what's with the what's with the costume? <laughs> which really irritates me, but I always say, well, I thought I might be meeting you today. Aww. because it's like it uh, to me getting dressed to go out is just a show of respect to mm. the other people that you're meeting during the course of the day. It really doesn't have anything to do with me. Trust me, I can <laughs> I can dress down with the best of them, but I still believe in that kind of social interaction where you dress if you're going out in public, you know? Yeah, it's that,
2: it's that old soul that we talked about earlier. Yeah, there, there you go, <laughs> there you go. Uh, for people that watch your show and love your show but aren't necessarily drinkers, will they still get something out of this cookbook?
3: Absolutely, That that was a big part of the strategy because I am aware that not everybody enjoys a cocktail, so I made sure that the stories that accompanied each cocktail were sufficiently interesting and entertaining that you'd get something out of the book even if you're not going to make the cocktail. So what's kind of interesting is whereas they are the centerpiece, it's not strictly a recipe book, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the recipes take up a very small portion, I mean, of the page. So when I talk about the big sleep and I pair it with a cocktail, most of the pages dedicated to The Big Sleep are about The Big Sleep, mm. right? <laughs> or, or why I chose this cocktail because you learn something about the writer of the book and how he treated all this and his story. And so all of that weaves its way through the book and, and makes it worthwhile for people, even if they're not going to make the cocktail.
2: What's your favorite pairing from the book? Oh, gosh.
3: Well, the one I'm there's a cocktail that I created. This is, I'll tell you this. This is kind of a talk about inside baseball. There's a cocktail I created. When I made it, it was called The Lady from Shanghai. Okay. Which is an Orson Welles movie from 1948 that starred his wife then, Rita Hayworth. And I I knew that I wanted to make a cocktail in tribute to this movie. And from scratch, I like equated each ingredient with a character in the film. Wow. And I, you know, so like Irish whiskey for Orson Welles, because he plays an Irishman and the shyster lawyer would drink brandy and Rita Hayworth would be represented by this very exotic liqueur, green chartreuse Mm. and a ginger liqueur. And then because it's the whole film is such a head trip. I said, well, it has to have an absinthe I was going to say, is there
2: absinthe in there? There's
3: absinthe rinse (laughs) in the glass with a lemon twist. And it's really, really good. It's the cocktail I'm proudest of that I created for the book. But I couldn't, in the end, I couldn't call it A Lady from Shanghai because the designer of the book, Paul Keppel, the way it, it fell, it would have said Lady from Shanghai would have been the head twice on the same page. Uh, And so he said, that doesn't look good. It offends my design (laughs) sensibilities. You have to rename the cocktail. And I said, well, let's just rename the movie because I really, so it's now a Sailor Beware. Okay. That's, That's the title of the cocktail. And my big hope, Jamie, my big hope is that somehow this catches on. Because nothing would please me more than like walking into a bar somewhere in New York and seeing a Sailor Beware. Uh, That would be really cool. That would that would mark my arrival. Yeah,
2: (laughs) no, I agree. I I mean, I have a sandwich at Ike's in in San Francisco. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Very like, oh, you know, I made it. (laughs) I have a sandwich. (laughs) <laughs> I
3: I noted that and I said, "Yep, that's what that's what I want to have. I want to yeah. have myself on a cocktail menu."
2: Well, I hope I hope that dream comes true for you and we so look forward to checking out the book and it's been such a delight talking to you. We are going to finish off with a little rapid fire round and then we have one final question for you that we ask everybody here on the podcast.
3: Okay, let's do it. All
2: right, your personal favorite cocktail? Martini. An iconic film noir movie everyone should watch.
3: Out of the past. All
2: right, one cocktail everyone should know how to make.
3: Well, I would say a martini. I was gonna say but, yeah, but, but I'm go- I'll, I'll I'll switch it up and say a Manhattan. A Manhattan. Everybody needs to know how to make a Manhattan.
2: Okay. Best writing advice you ever received?
3: Don't be afraid to be obvious. Mm. That was a, that was for writing fiction because I wrote around the point, and a, a very great writer named Bill Barrich read my manuscript and said. You got to get over the fear of being obvious. <laughs>
2: that's a good one. I like that. Proper way to order a martini.
3: Okay, I can tell you the improper way is is to request a martini and then say you don't want vermouth, hmm. because then suck it up and order a glass of gin because that <laughs> is not what a martini. You're, doing. you're either drinking gin or vodka, and if that's what you're drinking, just get that. Come on, man up. Just just say, give me a glass of vodka. You know, it, it has vermouth in it.
2: All right. Has vermouth. Rate your own cooking skills on a scale of one to 10.
3: Oh, boy. For my purposes, I, I'm going to say seven. Okay. I'm going to give myself a seven. That's, that's a I, respectable. I, I, could, I could be better, but I, I'm a good cook.
2: You hold your own. All right. Favorite movie theater snack?
3: Oh, because I'm such a conscientious moviegoer. Okay. It's junior mints.
2: Junior mints, interesting. What, because what,
3: they don't make noise.
2: They don't make noise, okay. That's right, I mean,
3: I mean I, they, they they shake in the box and you don't want to be uh, rattling those around. But when you're eating them, it's not like you're gnawing I mean, of course I always have popcorn. <laughs> But but you you know that's because you have to. The well, Your ha- is like a little additional that's thing, a little but, extra. but they make no noise when you eat them.
2: Okay, I I can't do chocolate and mint together, so that's that that one's out for me. But sorry, but I, but I respect I respect your your reasoning behind it for sure.
3: No um, chip ice cream for you? No, Jane? I
2: can't do it. I can't do. It. I think it tastes like toothpaste and chocolate. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah,
2: (laughs) you're like, yes, it does. All right. Last question. This is not rapid fire. So you can take as long as you want on this one. What would be on the menu for your perfect food day? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. Obviously, you can throw in some cocktails as well. There's no rules. You can time travel, spend as much money as you want. You know, supersonic jets, what, whatever needs to happen for you you're to. Gonna,
3: you're going to be amazed. <laughs> you're going to be amazed at how simple okay, this answer is. That's fine. Is, I mean, okay? some, it's
2: so interesting because some people have like an elaborate, you know, like I'm going to Japan for breakfast and then France for lunch and all this, and then other people are like, nope, this is this is my perfect day and it's it's all in one place. So whatever you want
3: to do. Okay, and it's funny that you, I, I was. I knew you were going to do this, mm-hmm. and so I was very enthused because <laughs> I no- I normally do this to other people. Okay, but m- when I do an interview, because I'm the noir guy, I frame this whole thing as it's your death house meal.
2: Oh yes, D- yes. your last meal. Your last what are you meal. You
3: have for your last meal before they ta- you take the long walk. through <laughs> and, and so I have thought about this and okay. I I, ha, I have really great answers from other people as well. But, so here's the deal. For breakfast, I am having what in France they call oeuf cantal, mm-hmm. which is melted cheese with a f- fried egg on top of it and a warm baguette. Mm. That's what I'm having Sounds for perfect. breakfast <laughs> with a cup of coffee. Of course. For lunch, you'll notice that you're going to be cholesterol counting pretty soon. Oh,
2: no, no, no. That doesn't count Uh, either.
3: Okay, good. So (laughs) for lunch, more bread. Okay. And I'm going to have an heirloom tomato sandwich. Mm, Okay. Just a really perfect heirloom tomato with, yes, mayonnaise. Yep. On on the bread, salt and pepper, that is it. Okay. That is the only thing on that sandwich. And I'm going to have a glass of red wine with that. Lovely. And then for dinner- I am going to have uh, at least two martinis, (laughs) (laughs) two martinis, a Caesar salad, and a dozen oysters.
2: Oh my goodness! I love that.
3: (laughs) That, That's my dinner. Okay. And yeah, in fact, you have made me really, really hungry now. And (laughs) I think you're going to
2: have to have that for dinner tonight.
3: Yeah, I think my day's agenda is now set.
2: (laughs) And are you dessert guy? Are you having dessert or no?
3: I'm not really a dessert guy. I have to say, I mean, I'll, I I find that I eat dessert to keep everything going. Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't want to leave the restaurant. So that's why you have dessert, right? It's a little something to share. And I usually do a shared dessert or something, but it's not something I look forward to, you know?
2: Okay. How do you take your, your, your martini by the way?
3: Okay, my Martin, this recipe is in the book. Okay. I, learned th- I learned this from the, the Spanish film director Luis Bunuel. He didn't teach it to me. He put the <laughs> recipe in his memoir. okay? And what you do is you get very, very dry ice in the mixing glass, you know, fresh out of the freezer with no moisture on it. Mm-hmm. And you pour like a half ounce of vermouth over the ice, Swirl it around and then pour the vermouth out. So the vermouth sticks to the ice mm, cubes. Okay. And then you put your gin in, your three ounces of gin, stir that around. And I take my martini with a twist, not an olive. Okay. And I find that that just having the vermouth rinse, not in the glass, but on the ice, is perfection.
2: Okay. I love that little <laughs> tip. Are you is it a is it a lemon twist or a grapefruit?
3: No, it's a lemon twist, okay. lemon twist. Okay. A little a little tip for you, Jamie, twists are always lemon. They're
2: always lemon, okay. They're
3: always lemon. So okay. I'm very suspicious when I go into a bar and I say with a twist and they go lemon or lime.
2: Because
3: um. I want to say there's good luck <laughs> trying to get a twist out of that lime. They don't really work That's that way. That's
2: true. But you can, so what would it be called if it, if it is grapefruit? Because I have a friend who's a mixologist. It is, that
3: he, it is a twist, but you, you have to specify. You specify. Like, like an orange or a grapefruit twist. Okay. Peel or something, you know, but if you just say twist, it's lemon.
2: Okay. Well, I just learned something new. So thank you. I'm glad I could be of service. (laughs) And thank you so much for taking the time. This was such a fabulous conversation and best of luck with the
3: new book. Thank you so much, Jamie. It was really a pleasure to do this. And like I say, we're not seeing your face, but I'm happy to see your face again, (laughs) because it was so fun having you out here in the Bay area back then. So good, good luck with everything yourself.
2: Thank you so much. I miss it a lot. Need to get back soon. Thank you. Eddie's new book, Eddie Muller's Noir Bar, cocktails inspired by the world of film noir is out now and available wherever books are sold. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday.